is Breaking Bread with Brilliant Babes. I'm your host, Tatiana Jimenez. We're recording today in a lovely house on the SoCal River in Capitola, which is south of Santa Cruz. Today I'm joined by Shannon Brock. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Tatiana. (laughs) Thanks so much for taking the time uh, to be on the show and chat with us today. For any first-time listeners out there, our purpose is to shed some light on everyday people doing brilliant things. I invite them into my home, cook a meal, and then we eat together and chat about their careers and how they got where they are today. Today, we are enjoying a Chick-fil-A-inspired superfood salad. And our guest, Shannon, is a behavioral health clinician in Monterey County who recently received her master's in social work. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So can you... Start by telling us a little about what you're doing currently and your career history up until this point. Sure. So I work for an agency called Interim uh, in Monterey County. It is a nonprofit that has a a lot of different services, um, support services, housing, and treatment for adults with mental illness. And right now I am a behavioral health clinician which essentially means I'm a social worker for the clients that are living in the housing program of Interim. So they have about, I want to say about 20 properties throughout Monterey County where they house Mm. adults with mental illness. And uh, I'm kind of responsible for the clients who live at four of those properties. Wow. Yeah. So as their social worker, I go to psychiatric appointments with them. I help them with um, medication. And then we also do therapy and Mm -hmm. teaching them, you know, skills to cope with their symptoms, that kind of stuff. Okay. So it's an, I didn't realize it was like an inpatient kind of situation. So you're not going out to visit people at their homes. It's people who are living in these places. Yeah. And it is their homes. I mean, it is, um, they're living in, so the, the properties that I have are pretty independent. Okay. So they have a counselor on site that they can meet with who helps them with ADLs, which are activities of daily living. So hygiene mm-hmm. and medication compliance and going grocery shopping, those things that like we do every day, which may be difficult for a lot of the clients that live there. Mm-hmm. Some of the properties that Interim has are a little more secure. They're a little more, a lot more supported. So less independent. They have somebody who does med support for them. So they come and get their medications three times a day. They have staff uh, round the clock who are there for them. So it really just depends on uh, kind of the client and what kind of services and what support they need. Yeah. So how did you get into this kind of work? I see that you graduated from... SF State mm-hmm. with a degree, a bachelor's degree in history. Yeah. And then kind of like, where, when did you decide to take on a career in social work? So yeah, I, I graduated um, with a degree in history and I kind of thought that I would become a lawyer. That was kind of the plan. Mm. My whole family is in law, so it was kind of just the natural progression, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I took some time off after graduating and I went and traveled around for a bit. And when I came home, I got the first job I could find, which was in a chiropractor's office. And I got to, I mean, that was fun, but I started, it gave me a lot of time to like think about what I really wanted to do. I started Mm -hmm. studying for the LSATs and I was like, I do not want to be a lawyer. It wasn't for me. It didn't feel right. And I knew I wanted to help people. So I started looking at nonprofits. Like I just wanted to get into any nonprofit I could. So I started looking for job openings and I found 
uh, position, an AmeriCorps position uh, with the Volunteer Center of Santa Cruz County. And for those who don't know what AmeriCorps is, it's kind of like, I used to describe it as like the domestic Peace Corps. So you do like a service term. Mine was 10 months. Some people do it for a year. Some people do it for longer. And I think the most common uh, AmeriCorps program is like Teach for America, where you're a teacher in like an underserved population or city. And um, mine was actually a service term with the volunteer center and I served as a volunteer coordinator for some of their programs. So that was really exciting and fun. And I got into to, um, nonprofit work and I thought that's kind of where I was going to stay and like do program coordination. So after my term, I actually was promoted to, to manage the AmeriCorps program. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was really cool and really fun for a couple of years, but I really kind of craved like more direct service, like one-on-one with clients and working with people instead of working with the volunteers, which was really fun. But mm-hmm. um, I just wanted a little something more. And around the same time, I started volunteering with CASA. And oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you guys have talked about that on the podcast before, ah. so I'm not going to go into great detail, but it's an, a wonderful organization. And I think that really like pushed me to want to go into social work because I just, I adored the girl I was working with and I all my supervisors at CASA were social workers. And so I started to think more seriously about that. And then wow. I applied to grad school. Gotcha. So where, yeah. where did you go to grad school? I went to um, <laughs> California State University, Monterey Bay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Great. And you just graduated. I did. Like, very exciting. Like three weeks ago. <laughs> so yeah. it's very new. So I guess, you know, you've been going to school for your master's and then also working at interim interim yeah okay. yeah <laughs> yeah it's kind of a weird because it's interim incorporated which okay. doesn't sound like a nonprofit, but it is right. <laughs> for the it was a three-year um, grad program that I did and for the first two years I was still at the volunteer center okay and then for my last year I accepted a position with interim as a counselor uh, working in their SEES program, which is S-E-E-S. It stands for Supported Education Employment Services. Mm -hmm. So what I did there was I helped clients, adults with mental illness uh, who wanted to go back to school. So I I helped them with the application process, with getting financial aid, with uh, registering for classes, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then also you know, taught them coping skills to manage their symptoms while they're in the classroom, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So that way they could be successful in in their classes. Uh, Yeah. Can I ask what like maybe the range of mental illness you're working with it with interim? Yeah. With a specific, I don't Mm -hmm. know, illness or. Yeah. So all of the clients to be eligible for the services have to be diagnosed with a severe mental illness, which is typically is is either schizophrenia, schizoaffective, which is schizophrenia with the mood disorder, mm-hmm. bipolar disorder. So th- that's like the most common okay. um, diagnoses that I work with. So I know that you just graduated and you're mm-hmm. about a year into your role, but when was the moment that you felt you broke into your industry or role, if mm-hmm. it's happened? Yeah. So I would say maybe two days ago. Whoa. (laughs) Maybe. I was fresh. Yes, very fresh. (laughs) But I also feel like there's, I'm going to have a lot of those moments Mm -hmm. uh, because I think something about social work that I really, really appreciate and really like is that it's, there's so many things you can do with social work and there's so many different roles you can take on. And 
so I'm excited to have a lot of those moments where I feel like, oh yeah, I've got this. But the other day, so I'm, so I've been in this new role with interim. I've been with interim for about a year, but now I'm in this new role since I have my, my degree, they promoted me to the behavioral health clinician. So I've only been in that role for about three months. They hired me on before I graduated with the condition that I graduated. Mm -hmm. So I finally had all my clients transferred to me. So they're my clients now. And the other day I had, I have a client who is really going through a hard time. He's decompensating. He's having a lot of symptoms. He was 5150, which means he was, yeah, he was sent to the hospital for this one. He was sent there for being gravely disabled. Um, so it's not, you can be, oh, yeah. I thought you were 5150 when you were uh, attempting to commit suicide. Yeah. So that's, that is definitely a really common, mm-hmm. you know, people are 5150 for that a lot. Um, but you can also be 5150 if you're gravely disabled, um, which means mm-hmm. that you cannot, you cannot care for yourself to, okay. to the point that it's, it's, very concerning. So this client in particular was not eating. He had huge memory lapses. So he um, wasn't taking his medication because he, you know, because of the memory stuff, he thought he had taken the medication or he just, there was a lot going on with him. And he actually was, uh, at the time that he was 5150, he was in one of our other programs with interim, which is called Manzanita. And it's a crisis center where we can we can bring clients and they can stay there for up to a month, I believe. Um, and it's just a place for them to kind of help to stabilize on their medications. To They have a psychiatrist there that they can see that can do, make adjustments to their medications. So we we had this client there and he was only there for about a week um, before he was 5150 from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just last week when I met with him, he didn't remember being at Manzanita at all the entire week before. He had no memory of it. He wasn't eating, wasn't taking care of himself, and he lives in a, in a housing complex right now that doesn't have a, a high level of care, so there's not somebody who can do med support for him. So the real concern was, was his memory lapses and him not taking his medications. Mm-hmm. So I attended his psych appointment with him, and basically, a, a long story short, I just, I think, I think I felt like I had, like, what was your wording like? It was broken to broken yeah. to, to my role because it was just a day where it was back to back things with, you know, one crisis after another with one client, um, with this client in particular, and then other things going on, and it was just a lot to handle. And at the end of the day, I was like, "Whoa, I I did it, and I survived." And when people had questions of me, like I was able to answer it, and just going to the appointment with the client and. You know, because he he clearly needed me there with him because he wasn't able to describe to the doctor what has been going on with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got to be there and I got to advocate for him and I got to assist him. And I'm, I'm trying to I'm in the process of trying to get him back into that crisis house right now, which has been difficult because they don't want to take him because he's also a medical risk because he's been very shaky and they think he might fall, which okay. so they're trying not to take him back. So I get to advocate for him, which is really mm-hmm why I got into this role, I think, because I, I want to yeah. be there to advocate for people. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a cool moment for me. But like I said, I think I'll have a ton of those moments. Oh, probably. I hope. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So along your journey so far, did you have a mentor and are you now maybe a mentor to others? I don't think that I'm a mentor to anyone yet. Mm-hmm. I'm so new into this career that mm-hmm. I haven't been given that opportunity yet. 
but I'm absolutely open to it and I can't wait for the day when I do get to do that. Um, mm. That's going to be really neat. In terms of people who have mentored me, I'm not too positive that I've had a, a really a really great mentor yet. I did two internships while in school and uh, my supervisors for those internships were great. They were they were really lovely people and they were great at their job, but I don't know that they necessarily had the time to to mentor me and to mm-hmm. to kind of craft my professional skills, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, but I also think yeah. it's kind of a testament testament to like social work and there's just not a lot of time and resources and so right. but I do, you know, I have a colleague from the volunteer center and I don't know if I would call her a mentor and I don't know if there's a word for what I would call her. She was kind of just a colleague and a friend who was kind of like one step ahead of me mm. always. Mm-hmm. And not in a, I'm not saying that in like a competitive way, but as like a motivating way, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Like when she applied to grad school, we talked all about it before she applied and while she was doing the application and all the excitement and everything. And she really motivated me to then apply to grad school. Mm. And when she got a promotion and was advocating for more money for pay, like we talked about that all the time. And so when I was, you know, applying to new jobs, she was talking to me about like, remember when I did this, like Mm -hmm. you should do it too. And so, uh, yeah, I would Mm -hmm. consider her, I guess, my mentor in a way. I don't think she knows that or Uh would consider herself my mentor but (laughs) But it also sounds like a nice example of shine theory too which I'm sure you're aware of Mm -hmm. like the idea that when when you shine I shine yes yes so yeah yeah, she just sounds like a like a solid just a solid person yeah if not your mentor just a great uh friend to have (laughs) yes she's she's absolutely wonderful Mm -hmm. and yeah I know, like, again, I know you're still a little bit new to your mm-hmm. role, um, having having worked in this field for a year. Mm-hmm. But what has been your biggest career obstacle so far slash shittiest moment? <laughs> I think they're two different things. So my biggest obstacle, I think, was taking the leap from doing program management to then going and working for interim where I would be getting direct service because... My role at the Volunteer Center when I was coordinating the AmeriCorps program was very, I don't know, I I don't want to say easy, but it was very comfortable. I was comfortable in that position. I knew how to do it. I knew all the ins and outs of the program and how to, you know, and everyone there was like family. It was a very comfortable place to be. And this was my, at the end of my second year of grad school. So I knew I would be going into my third year where I was going to have to do my research project and spend a lot of time you know, finishing up grad school, right? Mm -hmm. It's very time consuming. And so I was given this opportunity then to move down to Salinas where I would be commuting and I would be working for interim for less money than I was making at the volunteer center, but I would get the direct service experience that I really wanted and that I really needed. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and forth a lot with, with this, like, should I stay at this job where I'm really comfortable and have like an easy last year of grad school where I know like if I need to take time off, I can take time off to work on my projects or whatever, or should I go and work with this new company that I've never worked with before? I don't know what their culture is like. I don't know if I have the time to go and take off if I needed it to focus on school. And it was a huge risk and I was really scared, but I decided to go with interim obviously because I knew that if if I started there, I could grow there. Mm-hmm. 
but that was a really scary moment because I, I had a lot of regrets when I first left the volunteer center, um, cause it is such a great place and it was so comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interim was definitely had a lot more policies. They had a lot more structure to the work and, okay. but ultimately it's been like a really great thing because they hired me out of grad school. I got great experience working with the C's program. So mm-hmm. that was definitely the biggest obstacle. I think just making that leap shittiest moment. Um, I don't know. I think with working with mental illness, with adults with mental illness, you have to have really good boundaries with the clients. And I remember a couple months into my, my role at C's working in the employment services program, I had a client who forget what his diagnosis is actually, I believe it was schizoaffective. And he was just very symptomatic when he was working with me and it was very difficult and I had a hard time with boundaries with him and he, I don't know, it just, it, it, it's the only client that I've had to go to my supervisor and say, I, I don't think I can work with this person. Mm. And, and it worked out because he also complained about me. We just really didn't mesh very well. And that was really hard for me to take. That was, that's the only time it's happened. I'm sure it's going to happen in the future. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are going to be clients that, just for whatever reason, we don't mesh and I'm not serving them. I can't help them if they don't trust me, if they don't mm. get along with me or, or whatever. So yeah. I, um, so that was kind of a hard pill to mm-hmm. swallow that, you know, not every client's going to love me and I'm, yeah, I can try and be charming and right. <laughs> it's just not going to work. So yeah. yeah. It's, good. it's a good lesson. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So on the opposite end, uh, what has been your biggest opportunity slash best moment? My biggest opportunity, it really, it might have been that move from the volunteer center to interim, I -hmm. think. Yeah. I was really fortunate to get that opportunity. I, I, the girl who was working in the C's program before me was a, um, was also in the MSW program that I was in. She was a year ahead of me. So Mm -hmm. she uh, was graduating and she was reaching out to see if anybody wanted to fill her position. And I accepted that and she helped me me get in. It was really great. And um, after she graduated, interim hired her on also. So she is a behavioral health clinician as well. So we still work together. And yeah, so I think think that, I think I'm going to have a lot of other great opportunities coming my way now that I'm yeah, now that I'm in with Interim, I also think just having the opportunity to work in an organization that I really respect and trust, and they are very invested in in me. So now that I've graduated and have my MSW, I am going to try and get licensed as a licensed clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. And that's a about a two-year process. You have to do, I think it's 3,500 hours of client contact and supervision and all of that and interim is is providing me that group supervision and individual mm-hmm. supervision which a lot of times you have to you have to go and find it elsewhere if your agency isn't willing to provide that so yeah. I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to work for a company that's yeah that's really excited about me and mm-hmm. <laughs> gonna help me with my future Are you enjoying the podcast? Whether you're listening to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review and or a rating. This helps other listeners find our show in the abyss that is the internet. We greatly appreciate it, and thanks so much for tuning in. 
On this show, I also like to highlight what I call hidden talents. So things that are significant to our lives that we might not add to our resumes or aren't necessarily work-related. So uh, Shannon, I know from the Nike app, because we're (laughs) friends on the Nike app, that you're also a runner. Mm -hmm. So is that, I mean, we could maybe talk about other hidden talents you have, (laughs) but I think that might be something that we can talk about. Yeah. I am a I am a runner. I I proudly call myself a runner, even though sometimes I don't run. <laughs> but yes, I I started running like 2000. I don't know 14 2013 when I was at the volunteer center and I was doing my AmeriCorps year. I felt very overworked. AmeriCorps. One thing I didn't mention about AmeriCorps is that it's like you're working a full time job and you're getting paid a very measly stipend, which is like barely above like poverty line. Like it's, it's hard. So I was very stressed. And so I decided to start running to kind of relieve some of that stress. And I Mm -hmm. reluctantly signed up for a half marathon and trained for that and loved it. And then um, just continued running. And I think I go through ups and downs where I don't run for a really long period of time. And then I start again. And right now I'm really loving it. I'm running a lot. It's just helped with with grad school and now with my job now it's it just can be very like emotionally uh, stimulating and very draining and mm-hmm. so after after work I definitely make sure to go on a run a, a few times a week definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah, and it's fun. It it's is a great fun. way to see the world, mm-hmm. right? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, like just this morning co-producer and I, <laughs> Caitlin, uh, we uh, we went just on a mile-long run around Capitola, and it was really beautiful. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a fast way to see. It's a fast, <laughs> and it's a cheap way to see it. Yes. Yeah, you just really need shoes, and then mm-hmm. you don't even really need shoes. You can yeah. just, your body knows what yep. to do, so. Yeah, there's a lot of barefoot runners out there. there. Is, yeah. I don't know how they do I it. I can't do it. I have to have a lot of cushion, but <laughs> mm-hmm. the running store that I go to to get my shoes, they just mm-hmm. got this new machine where you step onto this, like, platform and it has 11 different cameras that take a picture of your feet and then they make a 3d like representation on an ipad or whatever of your feet and then they can yeah they tell you every little thing you ever want to know about your feet like how much natural cushioning you have how long this foot is compared to that foot how Mm -hmm. high it is and then they can like find the perfect shoe for you so i need shoes i can't do barefoot running yeah i need a lot of padding (laughs) same because of my knees Mm -hmm. all right cool well let's uh let's dive into the listener questions we have a handful so the first question i have is what is the role of a social worker outside of maybe child protective services. Mm-hmm. So social workers can work in many different areas, I think. Um, and I think most people think of child protective services and it is a huge part of social work, of course, but there's also social workers in hospitals, in community agencies, in schools. They're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you you know, there's some that are working on policy stuff, you know, on higher up trying to change policies for everybody and community organizers, that kind of thing. So it's really hard to kind of pinpoint what the role of a social worker is. But I think overarching, I would say that social workers are advocates for communities, for clients, for for legislature, for all that 
that kind of stuff. So I think that's the best description I can give you, but it really is broad. That's the cool thing about social work is, and that's the reason I really picked social work over like, like an MFT, which is, is an awesome career path, but I really wanted something that was a little more flexible where I could go and work in many different, with many different populations, with many different organizations and types of um, communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, social worker work is uh, ever-changing and really exciting and Mm -hmm. yeah. Great. How is social work funded? Is it something that's, because it's like, it's some, to me, it sounds like, 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 are you guys funded by the government? Mm Mm-hmm. So my organization is we bill to Medi-Cal. Okay. So it is all through the county. Uh, we get reimbursed for our services. So which can be a huge pain billing. Um, I think every social worker who does it will tell you it's not fun, and it is. Mm-hmm. It can be really hard to to get the funding that you need for the services that you're providing without wording it certain ways or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it also depends on what 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 type of social work you're doing, what agency you're working for. But a lot in mental health, you'll find that most of them are probably billing Medi-Cal or something like that. But yeah, like the volunteer center, the nonprofits, they, they relied on a lot of grants, Mm -hmm. donations. We did a lot of events throughout the year where we would get donations and community involvement and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it really just depends on what kind of agency and what kind of work they're doing. Okay. What are your thoughts on having to work within the quote-unquote system while knowing that the system might be a source of uh, oppression? Yeah, it's definitely true. Um, I think that a lot of our clients feel very burdened by being in the system, and it can sometimes be more of a burden than it is you know, helping them to get out of the system that they're in, right? In my limited experience, I can tell you about one time where um, where I've kind of seen this. So with mental health diagnoses, you the diagnosis you have can really impact the services that you get. Mm. So for instance, borderline personality disorder mm-hmm. is not considered a mental health diagnosis. And so clients who have borderline personality disorder may be diagnosed as bipolar in mm. order to get the reimbursement from Medi-Cal, right? So you can't, because wow. you can't bill on a borderline personality disorder, but you can bill for mm. bipolar disorder. But what that means is that somebody who's borderline, who has borderline, may not get the services that they need they may be getting services that somebody who is bipolar needs. Mm -hmm. So that's just, I mean, that's, I think, a a very light example of of how the system can be oppressive and and can be difficult. But then, you know, there's also, so a lot of our clients are on SSI, so they receive assistance from the government, SSI, SSDI, general assistance, whatever. Mm -hmm. And if they get a job where they're, you know, moved up a bracket, they're making a little bit more money, but it's not enough. They lose all their benefits. They don't qualify for some of the programs that we have, housing. So it can be, so a a lot of times the clients I think are sometimes a little hesitant to try and make that like upward move because Mm -hmm. they're afraid that they're going to lose all of the services that they need to survive. So yeah. Yeah, that's, that's hard. It is really hard. And mm-hmm. it's, um, we do have 
you know, benefit specialists that will come in and, and talk to them about like, well, here's what it would look like if you did this. And if you were making this much money, this is what would happen and mm-hmm. all that to kind of ease some of their concerns. And, and also like to let them know that there are other resources in the community to help them. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to just depend on kind of the services that they're receiving within interim or whatever mm-hmm. agency they're, they're with. So the next question that we have is, and this is pretty broad, but you know, this is just in your opinion, what is the most common misconception of mental illness that you feel is important to dispel? I think that um, the idea that those who are struggling with mental illness are dangerous or criminals or taking advantage of the system, I think that that's a really scary misconception that a lot of a lot of people have. And it's really just not true. I mean, I think I've heard the, that those with mental illness are much more likely to be the victim of crimes than to actually commit crimes. And that's, I mean, in my experience with the clients that I've worked with, I can say that they are all just really lovely people that are struggling, absolutely. Um, but they just want to be understood. They just want to be happy. They don't want to cause anyone harm. They don't you know, they're, they're really great people. And that's another thing that I, you know, going into this field, I was really nervous and I was a little anxious. And my first experience working with mental health was one of my internships. So I was very scared, right? Uh, I'd never worked with adults with mental illness. And I had a lot of, I think, those kind of fears that they were going to be violent mm-hmm. or they were going to have, you know, outbreaks where they were just, uh, you know, dissociative and not not there and that has never been the case. I have definitely seen clients who have who are clearly in the midst of some episodes. They're mm-hmm. symptomatic, they're struggling, um but I've never seen violence. I've never um experienced that and I know that that's out there, but it's really um I think it's a huge misconception and mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just, my clients are great and I've loved connecting with them and getting to know them and their personalities. And just, mm-hmm. it's really been wonderful. I have another question for you regarding your master's program mm-hmm. and your thesis. Uh, the question is, you know, can you talk a little bit about your thesis and the population that you maybe studied or the experiments that you did in your master's program? Yeah, so for my master's program, we were required to do kind of a capstone research project. And I was at the time interning with a local high school, a public high school here in Santa Cruz County. And while I was there, I noticed that a lot of the students that were coming in to meet with me had really like strange attitudes and behaviors when it came to like eating. Um, a lot of them like would skip meals or they just had just strange, I don't know, ideas about food and also about their appearance, which I think is not uncommon for teenagers to kind of have some body dissatisfaction stuff. But anyways, so yeah, I noticed that. And then I also noticed that there was like just a lot, a lack of resources in the community for me to refer students out if they did have eating disorder symptoms. And so that was something that was really interesting to me. And I wanted to look at like how the students were perceiving the lack of community support if they were at all, right? And so I developed a a mixed methods 
project where I looked at four different social supports and eight different eating pathologies. And eating pathologies are basically any symptom of um, an eating disorder. So the eight that I looked at mm-hmm. were body dissatisfaction, restricting diet, purging, cognitive restraint. So like telling yourself, you know, don't eat that, don't eat this, whatever. Mm-hmm. Excessive exercise, muscle building, negative attitudes regarding obesity, and binge eating. And then the four social supports I looked at were family, friend, school, and community. And so what I really wanted to know was how students were perceiving or how their perception of those supports affected how they, you know, exhibited or how they, you know, what those eight eating symptoms were like for them. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I I did a survey um, to about 40-something students at the high school, and then I interviewed 12 students. And, I mean, I the results that I found were, some of them were pretty, I don't know, expected, and some of them were pretty shocking. So I found, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what I, what I found was that I looked at family and friend, but I really wasn't that wasn't my main focus. I really wanted to know more about the community support, but I still wanted to know, you know, how this school was, how they, how those students perceived friend and family support too, just to see Mm -hmm. kind of how it compared to like what else is already out there in research. Mm -hmm. So I found that as like the perception of family support decreases, the purging, restricting diet and body dissatisfaction scores of the students increased for friend support. So as friend support decreases or their perception of friend support decreases, the purging scores increased. Wow. And then for community, I didn't find any anything out for schools. I didn't there wasn't a lot of correlations there. I don't okay. know. Um but for community, I found that as the perception of community support decreases, the purging scores and body dissatisfaction scores increased. Wow. So yeah, I, I, you know, body satisfaction was a really big one that, that came up mm-hmm. during the interviews and everything like that. And that's like one of the leading symptoms that can progress to all these other symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah. I think that's kind of one of the biggest, most important ones that I was looking mm-hmm. at. And then I also kind of like looked at the the demographics of the, the population, um, the sample population that I was looking at to see like mm-hmm. who's more at risk and... It was, you know, a very small sample, but I, I was still able to get some results. So um, those are pretty significant results for forty people, because this is you're not sampling from a group of forty people that you already knew mm-hmm. were struggling with body dissatisfaction, right? Yeah. It was just a random sample, right? It was yeah. um, I sampled the the health classes at the high school. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. so I went into the health classes, gave them this survey that I created that you know gave them a score on. Mm-hmm. Eight, the eight different eating pathologies and then the four social supports and then kind of compare them. Wow. But yeah, it's it's really like alarming to me to hear that so many kids are like purging. And that's not to say that all 40 of the kids that I surveyed have yeah. these, but they're definitely, it, there was enough to see a correlation, which yeah, yeah is mm-hmm. pretty scary. Um, yeah. And then for the interviews, I did 12 interviews and mm-hmm. I would say like 10 or 11 of those interviews, the students talked about 
you know, different body parts that they would want to change or mm. just like an overall dissatisfaction with how they look. Yeah. And, and some of them had like very extreme behaviors that were really alarming. And then wow. again, like I said, there's just really not a lot of resources mm-hmm. for them in the community. Yeah. So that, yeah, it was, it was really an interesting process mm-hmm. to do the research and I thought I was going to hate it and I thought I was not going to like doing research, but I yeah. loved it. It was so much fun. And I do hope that it it kind of helps shed a light on at least at that school I was able to like share it with the the assistant principal and that's great yeah so hopefully yeah. they'll they'll see the need for increasing some support but what I really would like to do in the future is like mm-hmm. share it at like a city hall meeting because I think mm-hmm. the community is where it really needs to step up yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, where we need to step up like our our services provided to the students. And then also, again, like, it's not asking what their perception of community support on issues of eating disorder is. It's community support in general. So Mm. really, like, agencies, organizations that may not necessarily address eating disorders, even if we increase those supports, it still has an effect on how they eat and how they have, you know, what belief systems they have in food and their body and everything like that. So. Wow. That's fascinating. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It was really fun. And, uh, yeah. Depressing. Yeah. Um, (laughs) well, um, the last, uh, listener question we always like to ask is if you weren't working in social work, what, what other types of work would you pursue or be interested in? Mm -hmm. So, I've thought a lot about this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I kept coming back to the same thing. So the same career path. And I think that it would be so much fun to be like a fitness instructor of some kind. I could see you doing that. It would be awesome. (laughs) Like yoga or Zumba, which I've like recently started kind of doing. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fun, right? (laughs) I do it at 24 hour fitness. Yes. It's a lot of fun. It's so much fun. And it's just and and I've also started doing bar classes, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you're familiar what bar is. A lot of people look at me like, "What?" Whenever I say that, it's like a ballet workout, right? Yeah, kind of. I think I think okay. a lot of ballerinas use it, but they do mm-hmm. use the the ballerina bar. But it's like a lot of I don't even know how to describe. It. It's awesome. Everybody, go check out your local gym and see <laughs> if they do bar classes. But that's what I would want to do. Like, okay, yeah, because I just think it it's so important to be active, and it's so. It, you know, increases the endorphins and endorphins are great. But also I always wonder when I'm in class, I see people progressing. Like I'll see the same people every week and I'll see them get better and better each week. And I'm like, that is so cool. And me too. Like I'm getting better and better each week and I think it's awesome. But I just always think about how awesome it is for the instructors Mm -hmm. to see their, their students progressing. So I think that would be a really fun job. That, yeah, yeah, that's and great. and maybe I'll do it someday. Yeah, <laughs> you could do it in retirement. You yeah, could be totally. like a super cool Zumba instructor. Yeah. So the last question I like to ask guests at the end of every episode is, uh, "What are you looking forward to this week?" Well, 
I'm really looking for. So there's this new place in Santa Cruz. It's kind of new, new to me because I don't get out enough. But mm-hmm. it's called Abbott Square in downtown Santa Cruz, and they have like a bunch of little. It's kind of like a food court, like a cool one that you would want to hang out in. Uh-huh. And um, my fiance has agreed to take me on a date night there <laughs> because they have a um, popsicle place, mm. which I just think is really cool. You can get like a popsicle, and then they'll. They'll drizzle, like, chocolate or whatever you want on it. Mm-hmm. They'll put toppings on it. I'm like, okay. So I'm excited about date night. Uh-huh. I am excited about running, going on a run. I'm going to try and go um, out to this place called Wilder Ranch in Santa Cruz County, which is beautiful. It's, it's a great place to go running. Yeah, I'm just excited to not be in school. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, to have my evenings free again Uh and do things like date nights and running and all that stuff. That's great. Cool. Well, do you have anything that you would like to plug or any resources you'd like to share with the listeners? And we'll we'll link everything on the website. Yes, I do, actually. And so I don't know events or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but I knew that we would be talking about my research a little bit. And so I did want to share National Eating Disorder Association's hotline number. Okay. And their, their website, so National Eating Disorders, with an S, dot org. You can, so you can call their hotline, which is uh, 1-800-931-2237. And then they also have, you can text them if it's a crisis situation, okay. and they will, um, they'll connect you with a trained volunteer. So you just text NEDA to 741-741. And uh, mm-hmm. just, I just want to get it out there that I, we talk a lot about mm-hmm other hotlines and stuff like that. And they do have one for this, but also I also wanted to give the national suicide hotline because that is a huge mental health issue. And recently there's been a couple kind of celebrity suicides and I know Mm -hmm. it's a hot topic right now. Like people are, I read an article about how suicide are, is it's increasing in the U S by like 25% or something like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't quote me, but it's alarming. And so I also wanted to kind of plug the National Suicide sure. Prevention Lifeline, um, which is a 24-7 hotline for anybody who wants to reach out, feels like they need some extra support. So that number is 1-800-273-8255. And just wanted to encourage people to be kind to each other and check in on each other. And yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> So thanks, Shannon, so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I had a great time, and the food was delicious, and conversation excellent. Yeah, this was wonderful. So to learn more about Shannon and the other topics we covered on this episode, head over to our website, brilliantbabespodcast.com, where you can also listen to previous episodes, check out our event calendar, and get the recipes for the dishes we make for each episode. Today's recipe was Chick-fil-A-inspired superfood salad. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay tuned for episodes every other Tuesday. Take care, everyone.